right-wing extremism and conspiracies, recovering from the pandemic, and outcomes from ASEAN meetings. Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. In this week's episode, we discuss the newly released Volume 2 of Aspie's After COVID-19 report series. The main attributes that, that you need to demonstrate to grow and wield soft power is you have to be competent. And developments with ASEAN. Yes, Australia is um, actually engagement is quite positive in, in this regard. But first, Leanne Close and Elise Thomas discuss right-wing extremism, conspiracy theories and different conspiracy groups. They also consider the responses from social media companies and offer suggestions on how governments should respond. So Elise, some of the key issues that I've been uh, looking at in terms of terrorism and its impact on Australia over the last few weeks has been a couple of emerging themes, particularly around right-wing extremism. Also, and I know you want to talk about some of the aspects around conspiracy theories and how that impacts um, people in Australia and the potential move to violence. Uh, I know Islamic extremism is still an issue for Australia. And I've also been speaking to several people in uh, law enforcement and intelligence communities. Uh, they're also still concerned about high-risk terrorist offenders who are in custody or have been released. I think they've had about eight released out of Australia this year and there's another 12 or so next year and what potential impact they may have given um, what's happened in the UK over the last six or 12 months. In that respect, just wondering what what are some of the key things you've been looking at in recent times that have concerned to you in terms of terrorism and its effect in Australia? Uh, yeah, I, I think all of those are, are concerning aspects. I suppose the difficult thing about the COVID crisis is it's really heightened all of those risks at the same time. Um, so you do have an increased risk from right-wing extremism associated, first with the fact that you just have like a much larger cohort of financially disempowered people who are spending a lot of time often at home, often on the internet, um, sort of building up that frustration, building up that anger, which makes them, you know, a very tempting target for people who are looking to recruit into extremist movements. And that applies obviously to right-wing extremism, to Islamic extremism and to conspiracy extremism, which is a, a emerging threat, I think, here in Australia. We haven't yet had, I think, what would well, not recently uh, qualify as a conspiracy extremist attack here yet, but I think it's a, certainly a significant and growing risk. And since the start of the year, we have seen a number of violent incidents linked to conspiracies uh, overseas, in the US, in Canada, in other places around the world. And so I think I think the difficult thing about this moment in time is that places um, significant demand on limited resources to try and cover all of those threats at once. That's so true. When you look at just the way the economy's going as well, uh, whether it's terrorism or just violence and, and lots of protest action, anti-government sentiment, you wonder how much that's going to tip over into violence into the future. And as you say, the law enforcement intelligence, other resources are really stretched at the moment trying to deal with the myriad of issues they've got to deal with. So I think um, one of the issues for those agencies is really just how they can collaborate together and be much more effective in looking at the issues and sharing intelligence, sharing ideas and information within government but also um, with other companies. And I've seen some really positive um, reporting in recent times about companies like Telegram, Facebook, Twitter, taking down some of those sites, which is interesting in terms of 
there's only a small number they've taken down, how much impact's it having and is it actually having an effect at all? Yeah, I mean, so we've seen um, Facebook make particularly a couple of announcements that they were taking down, firstly taking down Boogaloo-related content um, and then later saying that they were going to take down QAnon-related or or restrict QAnon-related content. I wouldn't say just from the at least the the groups that I keep an eye on, um, I wouldn't say any of them have been significantly affected. (laughs) So certainly the QAnon groups are still there and they seem to be going just fine. Um, The Boogaloo groups, they were, Facebook did crack down on them briefly. Um, They were back within weeks. Um, I had a task to um, just to go and look for Boogaloo related pages a couple weeks back and it took me about an hour to find I think 72 Wow. Um, because because they're all out there, like they they they've some and and in fact some of them haven't even changed the name. Some of them still have Boogaloo in the name, which is is I think um, just a sign that nobody is is taking this as seriously as perhaps it should be taken. Um, there's even Boogaloo, or there was as of a couple of weeks ago, still openly Boogaloo branded merchandise being sold on Facebook. Um, so you know it's yes, there have been some announcements that they're going to start cracking down on this activity, but it's not playing out in practice yet. And that's just the overt sort of public-facing yeah, site, so yep. the only thing that's happening in the, the dark web itself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, although in some ways I think for Boogaloo, um, actually the Facebook really is the locus of that activity, so it's not so much a thing that is as yet happening um, in sort of like dark web spaces or, or even, even so much on Telegram yet. It's, it's very Facebook-oriented, Boogaloo. So just in terms of Boogaloo Boys, I've heard some um, people, particularly academics, who feel that they're not actually a right-wing extremist group. They wouldn't classify them as that. They might classify them as a left-wing extremist group. We've certainly seen that they're anti-government. They wear these Hawaiian shirts, but they're quite well-armed. I feel sorry for anyone who lives in Hawaii wearing a Hawaiian shirt right now. Maybe you could just outline what what you're seeing in terms of their ideology. So the Boogaloo started as a meme, right? It didn't start as sort of a uh, well-formed ideology. It didn't have a particular political orientation necessarily. And the fascinating thing that we've seen over the past few months is the media spotlight on the Boogaloo movement, such as it is, um, has actually really forced them to define themselves in a, in a really interesting way. There was a bunch of kind of media coverage early on in the Black Lives Matter protest and early on in the um, anti-gun restriction protests, um, which painted the Boogaloo Boys as a far-right movement and also as a, as a white supremacist movement. And then within the Boogaloo groups, there was a lot of reaction there. And there, was, there were a bunch of people who came out and said, no, no, the Boogaloo is not a racist movement. We're not, you know, we're not far-right. We're just, you know, we just want a second civil war. And then you had a bunch of other, you know, people in those groups who said, wait, what, we're not white supremacists? Who were sort of genuinely surprised. And I think that's the, the interesting thing about this particular movement such as it is, and I use that word carefully because I, I think it is um, in the process of turning from a meme, a, an internet joke, into a movement. It is kind of um, formulating itself in response to the media attention that it's had recently. I think that typifies some of the difficulties that law enforcement agencies or intel agencies really have in terms of dealing with monitoring these groups, identifying whether they've actually committed offences or not, and mm-hmm. and being able to understand and maybe even have prevention strategies because they don't even understand their own ideology. Some of them are just, as you said, wanting a race war, anti-government or um, xenophobic or neo-Nazis. And there just seems to be this proliferation of groups and the online social media aspect of it 
is uh, something that is just proliferating right around the globe. Yeah, that's, and, and that's the really tricky thing about this movement in particular, although although it also applies to a lot of the, particularly the right-wing extremist groups have come out of the image boards, like the, you know, 4chan, 8chan, now 8kun, 9chan, um, <laughs> the, the dizzying proliferation of, of image boards. The way in which humour kind of obscures and makes difficult to establish how much of a threat any individual person is, um, in the sense that you could have two people on these forums, having a conversation with each other, trading jokes and memes back and forth. And for some of them, it's just a terrible joke and bad humour. And for some of them, it's a, a very serious thing that they will turn into real-world action and potentially a violent attack. And it's really hard to tell those two things apart. And it's so difficult in terms of all the various conspiracy theories and other groups who is going to become violent or mm. radicalised as a result of it. Are you seeing any convergences in these sorts of groups with conspiracy theory, theorists through to... Um, aligning themselves with left or right-wing extremism? Look, it's it's difficult to say. I mean, I guess there's an element of, you know, right-wing extremism has always had an element of conspiracy in it. So when you think about, um, for example, Bretton Tarrant, the Christchurch shooter, the title of his manifesto, The Great Replacement, that is a conspiracy theory. Um, and so there's always been a conspiratorial element across a lot of forms of extremism, including sort of white nationalism. Um, there is a certain amount of friction between some of these right-wing extremist groups and particularly the more um, established conspiracy groups like QAnon, for example, um, in that they're quite disdainful of, of QAnon. Um, so there's a there's a level of sort of making fun of the, the conspiracy groups, which in some ways is quite reassuring because you wouldn't want them to unite. But uh, having said that, there is also crossover, so it really depends on which conspiracies you're talking about and which which groups. And what do you think are some of the policy approaches that groups or the government or mainstream sort of communities can take? Um, look, it's it's really, really hard, particularly with conspiracy groups, um, because there's a really strong chance that anything government does could backfire quite badly. I actually think one of the policy steps which has not been looked at and which should be looked at more carefully is just making it more difficult for these groups to make money. So the profit motive, I think, is a, is a really significant component of particularly a lot of the conspiracy-related stuff. So, for example... If you go onto Amazon or if you go onto Etsy or, you know, a variety of other um, kind of e-commerce platforms, you can buy merchandise for this stuff. You know, there are people making a significant amount of money and that I think it would, as a, a quite easy and obvious first step, you could start imposing um, some kind of penalty for platforms for selling this kind of merchandise, which is linked to either particularly severe conspiracies. And obviously there's, there's always grey zones around sort of freedom of speech and that kind of thing, um, freedom of expression. But, you know, we could find a way to deal with that. Um, so, like, give some clear guidance about what's in and what's out. Same thing applies to, for example, selling Boogaloo merchandise. Um, again, there's a ton of that just freely available. And that profit motive really adds to to the problem. So that I think that would be sort of a, a low-hanging fruit that could be dealt with and then you could move on to the really hard stuff. I think that's such a good example because we saw it with the Islamic State and the flag and the, the real attention and focus on stopping the flows of funds to Iraq, Syria and, and really being uh, strongly focused on what that meant. Mm. We saw some interdictions with um, the US authorities seizing Bitcoin or other sorts of cryptocurrencies recently. That must have hurt them. There was also a big seizure of uh, narcotics in Italy a few about two months ago now that allegedly was from Iraq, Syria to fund ISIS uh, activities. So I think you're right. That's the sort of approach that where we've learnt from what's worked 
previously when um, there's been Islamic extremism on the rise, mm. what works from an interdiction perspective? And I, I think it, just in terms of, I guess, government policy, I think one of the big challenges is actually just getting policymakers to take this seriously um, in the sense that I think there is a tendency to dismiss conspiracy theories as some crazies on the internet who don't really matter. But, I mean, the, the fact is it doesn't matter how ridiculous their reasons are, if they're willing to commit violence in, in support of those reasons, that's something we should be concerned about. And I think we are getting to the point now in Australia, particularly as a result of some of the activity that we've seen around the anti-lockdown protests in Melbourne, where people are starting to pay more attention and starting to, to recognise that this is a serious issue, even if it sounds absurd. But I, I think sort of just creating that awareness and education amongst policymakers, amongst law enforcement agencies, this is a serious issue that they need to pay attention to. Um, that in itself would be valuable. And having those discussions with the mainstream about misinformation and disinformation that's out there and mm. trying to correct that without, as you say, impinging too much on privacy. Mm. Um, there's always a... a attention as well with the media and sort of how the media should cover an issue like this um, in the sense that you want to you want to educate people about this but at the same time you don't want to give too much oxygen um, and I think having um, more research and a more kind of informed debate within the media about covering this issue so that they're not either giving too much coverage to the conspiracies or allowing the conspiracists to launder their own narratives through so we've seen this with QAnon and Save the Children um, we've seen some very bad mainstream media reporting of sort of Save the Children rallies, which were actually QAnon rallies. And so we've covered a lot of those um, issues and topics in the current Counterterrorism New Book uh, for 2020. So if people are interested in reading a little bit more, they can have a look at that. And we're currently in the process here at ASPE in curating the 2021 edition. So lots of these topics and issues will be covered in that as well for people to read in um, early 2021. Thanks, Elise. Thank you very much, Leanne. Now, Brendan Nicholson and Michael Shoebridge discuss the second volume of After COVID-19, which focuses on Australia, the region and multilateralism. Right, Michael, congratulations. You've produced the second volume in ASPE's After COVID series of books. What does this one mainly deal with? Well, Brendan, it's great to have volume two out and about. Uh, so with volume one, uh, I think we showed the value of stepping back and, and looking at some of the big drivers and assumptions. And with this second volume, we focused around three core themes. Uh, the first one is Australia and the region. So that's things like uh, Australia and the South Pacific, South Pacific travel bubble, um, uh, regional relationships like Australia, Japan, Australia, India. Second theme is multilateralism, Australia and the world. And it looks at things like the future of the UN system and the effect of Chinese uh, US strategic comp competition and struggle, um, and also multilateralism and soft power, what it takes to wield effective soft power. And then the last theme is one around security, technology and diplomacy and how they've been affected by the pandemic, including the potential rise of the surveillance state and the risks to academic freedom uh, in Australia's uh, education sector. So it's been a fantastic opportunity to look at those three main issues. And I think what comes out of it is an incredibly positive agenda for Australia. Do you get the impression that Australia is regarded in the region as somebody who's handled the pandemic quite well itself and which can then therefore help regional nations? Yes. And in fact, uh, Caitlin Byrne, in uh, volume two writes on exactly this question of soft power and she has the main attributes that that you need to demonstrate to grow and wield soft power is you have to be competent 
and she talks about how Australia and a few other governments internationally, governments like uh, Taiwan and New Zealand and South Korea, have proven competence across their different levels of government and with their other institutions and public in managing the pandemic. That's created a soft power benefit for countries uh, like those in that list, and Australia is one of them. The second attribute that uh, she says you need for soft power influence is you have to be expert. And again, this is where Australia comes out well with the pandemic. Uh, we've been led by expert insights with political decision makers making good judgments around that expert judgment. And then uh, the last two are to be authentic and to start at home. So I think when you put all those measures together, uh, the starting at home means be competent and capable at home and authentic and then use that same uh, approach to project globally. Uh, on that measure, Australia has enormous soft power which we had before the pandemic, but which we have grown by our competence during the pandemic. And that's a huge advantage for us. Clearly, our medical specialists are getting better at curing people or carrying them through the, the crisis points. And the death toll appears to have been much lower in Australia than it has been in many other places. Is it going to be difficult for Australia to project that out into the region? Now, we've got a situation where... We've got a massive resurgence in Indonesia and the Philippines is suffering badly. Some of the Pacific Island nations probably haven't yet felt the main impact of the pandemic simply because they're somewhat isolated. Do you think we're planning to actually get out into the region and help? Well, yes. In fact, uh, there's quite a lot already going on with Australian interaction with regional partners like Indonesia and certainly the South Pacific um, island states on COVID-19 to um, help them deal with or, in fact, uh, keep COVID out of their communities in the case of the South Pacific. The fact that Australia uh, has had a, a sort of a problem with, with the outbreak, particularly in Victoria, but to a lesser extent New South Wales, has meant that our health resources that we might have otherwise turned more towards uh, regional assistance have been sort of directed back domestically a bit more. But uh, Volume 2 talks about a, a wonderful thing that Australia could do with um, the South Pacific and New Zealand, which is... Uh, instead of the Australia-New Zealand travel bubble that we talked fondly about before the Melbourne outbreak, Australian medical, border control and other assistance could help New Zealand and Fiji lead the creation of a South Pacific travel bubble, which would be one of the most beneficial things on the planet for restarting those countries' economies, which are so dependent on travel and tourism, uh, and also really doing what the South Pacific wants, which is improving their public health. They're far wiser about these priorities than we have been. Public health, human security and climate change are at the top of their priorities, and Australia providing assistance to Fiji and New Zealand, creating that South Pacific travel bubble. It's probably the most beneficial and most strategic thing that, that we could do. It's explored in volume two. And that could extend presumably to things like vaccination campaigns once we get a vaccine. Well, exactly. Uh, but it would also mean buying a whole lot of time for the South Pacific before that happens. And if you remember right back to the start of the Australian strategy for managing COVID-19, it's been all about buying time, that flattening the curve, uh, reducing the strain on the health system, 
and reducing the number of deaths you have early because as treatment improves and if a vaccine becomes available, the number of deaths you would have as compared with just letting the virus rip is much lesser. So that's another big benefit that we could bring to the South Pacific. You sometimes get a sense that the South Pacific in particular is very much uh, out of sight and out of mind for Australians, that it's um, somewhere nice with palm trees out there in the, in the vast ocean. Do you think this will give us, incidentally, an opportunity to re-establish warm relations and, and contact with many of these countries? Well, you know, my thought about that is um, South Pacific peoples and governments are warm towards Australia in a way we maybe don't reciprocate as fully as we should. I think Scott Morrison gets this problem and he personally uh, returns that warmth with his Pacific family idea. I think this pandemic, uh, because it's about public health, It's a demonstration that we should be listening to South Pacific voices much more in our Australian policy debates, because it turns out with the BOE Declaration, putting human security at the centre rather than national security in a traditional hard-edged defence way was fundamentally right. And as the effects of climate change occur, it's only going to get more right. So I really think it's a case, it's an opportunity for us to change that assumption about the South Pacific and realise there's probably more value to us in listening to their voices and perspectives than there is to them in listening to our voices and perspectives. Is this a variation on what we've come to know as the grey zone or is it is it a parallel to it? Well, I think soft power is uh, the way of operating successfully in the grey zone. You know, a lot of people talk about the grey zone like it's uh, nasty underhand activities done covertly and corruptingly. Well, that's one version of operating in the grey zone. The other one is to use soft power openly and effectively. And as Caitlin Byrne says, be authentic. If you bring sincerity to your actions, you'll be more influential than if you try to do it covertly and corruptly. So I think that the lesson out of this volume for Australia is our values and our ethical framework are a positive for us, not a constraint as some of uh, the harder-edged types would, would characterise it. Do you think policymakers will take it seriously? Well, I think they take seriously what works. Mm. And uh, in fact... There's a great section in Volume 2 about Australia-EU relations and it talks about uh, the fact that for years Australians and European policymakers have talked about shared interests, but the pandemic has showed us that they're real. Two articles uh, in the volume talk about this. They talk about the similarities in the pandemic management, although with different results in Europe to Australia, the similar approach of uh, open liberal governments not welding people into apartments and hitting them over the head with truncheons as part of the pandemic response. And that wonderful partnership between the Europeans and Australia to get a proper inquiry into the causes of the pandemic. And then they spell out opportunities because of this driving need to reduce the vulnerabilities in our countries from not having the things we need in a crisis, military or public health, as we've seen. So there's a big common agenda now uh, for the EU and Australia, shown by the pandemic and explored in volume two. And I understand that those who've enjoyed this podcast 
would be able to pick up a an after COVID series, is that right? Yes, uh, you don't have to uh, take my word for what's in the volume because we'll be uh, having a series of the authors um, talking about what, what they have written about and suggested and why in uh, the next coming weeks through the SB podcast. So thanks for a chance, Brennan, to talk to you about the volume overall and what we hope for it. And I'd encourage uh, people to, to listen to people more expert on each topic than me over the coming weeks. Michael, thanks very much. Thank you, Brennan. Finally, research intern Alexandra Pasco caught up with Dr. Huang Le Tu to discuss some of the main outcomes from the recent series of ASEAN meetings. Thanks so much for joining me today, Huang. Uh, we're going to be discussing the series of ASEAN meetings that were held last week and look at some of the key outcomes from the discussions. First, we had the East Asia Summit, and this was followed by a number of ASEAN foreign ministerial meetings with the ASEAN foreign ministers and their key international partners, including China, the US and Australia. Uh, and obviously, all of these meetings have been taking place amid the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, rising tensions in the South China Sea, and increasing rhetoric and competition playing out between the US and China. So there's no shortage of things to discuss. Um, Huang, would you be able to tell us a bit more about the meetings, what was on the agenda, and uh, what were the outcomes? That's right. Thanks, Alex. Yes, I think it was important to have those meetings, uh, even though they were virtual. And because the nature of virtual meetings, I think there was uh, uh, some challenges, including, you know, very much logistic and scheduling. So for Vietnam as the chair, it wasn't easy um, to coordinate all the meetings virtually, uh, including, you know, there's challenges, including the time zones differences, right? That's something that you wouldn't normally have if you have everyone come over. And earlier this year, I think there was a point where Vietnam really hope that some of the meeting can be can take place in Vietnam in Da Nang but obviously there was this you know second wave in in Da Nang that prevented and will still not opening borders so uh, everybody had to settle for virtual meeting and I think it's important uh, that the meetings took place anyway because of uh, as you mentioned very many activities very many fast developments in the region so it's even more important uh, that leaders of countries in ASEAN, as well as their partners, had a chance to consult, discuss, and um, uh, keep that regularity of dialogue going on, uh, even though you know uh, we're missing uh, the regular and trademark, trademark ASEAN handshakes and trademark ASEAN meetings, uh, photos, and probably, you know, a lot of opportunities to talk um, on the sidelines and behind closed doors. But nevertheless, I think it was important to, to carry on and have that regularity. Obviously, we're still having um, final uh, summits towards the end of the year. But these, uh, these summits, as you mentioned, uh, were very critical amidst the the hypertensions, I would say, um, induced by, by China, but not only uh, in the region and including uh, South China Sea. And it was also important for uh, everyone uh, in the, the participants to talk about common approaches and share experience about how to cope with COVID and um, what other th their thoughts and plans in terms of post-COVID recovery and, and think ahead also 
beyond this uh, very you know difficult time so it was good uh, to for them to, to meet and i think there are quite a few outcomes important developments that uh, perhaps often don't meet uh, the the mainstream media just because of so many things are happening obviously the south china sea was a very important issue um that uh, kept everybody you know guessing despite the fact that um you know the joint statement was issued as per regular as, as um of all asian meetings i think this time around it took a couple of days for uh, it to be released which was uh, quite surprising is either um, a matter of um, virtual coordination it was a challenge of you know um, members not being able to consult but uh, um, all guessing points to um, you know difficulties in negotiating um, the text in terms uh, in regard to the South China Sea uh, but after all uh, the joint statement of the ASEAN foreign ministers did mention the South China Sea, did raise issue of tensions there, and uh, what is more important, did uh, reaffirm the UNCLOS and the, the rule of law as a base for uh, negotiations. So that is quite um, a good positive uh, outcome of uh, one of the outcomes of, of the meetings. Do you think the joint communique is sort of anything new in terms of the stance of Southeast Asian nations on the South China Sea? Yeah, that's, that's interesting because um, by and large, text is the same. Uh, it's a regular language. And if it took so long and it, it even, you know, uh, was a uh, delayed release of joint statement, it does speak uh, some volumes about how uh, challenging this issue is uh, to, to the to date, right? And I think what is relatively new, it already appeared in the previous um, summits and previous joint statement is uh, that really underlining UNCLOS as a base of, of um, a result, resolution of disputes and bringing back the 2016 arbitral tribunal ruling between um, China and the Philippines. So I think it by and large is not new, although the emphasis is on the legality, uh, the legal aspect of, of the resolution um, of the dialogue as well. But what was interesting for me was uh, just before the meetings took place, just a day or two, uh, we had Chinese defense ministers visiting uh, Malaysia and Indonesia ahead of the meeting. Um, so I, I think it was not pure coincidence. I, was, I think it was uh, an, an attempt of China to really uh, soften its image. As you know, you and I wrote a piece on South China Sea and recent development, um, re recent hyperactivities there, including, you know, um, of obviously tension also uh, resurfacing with Indonesia and the Tuna Islands, but um, I think it was an, an attempt from China to really soften a little bit and then show it its goodwill um, ahead of the summit, making it for the ASEAN members uh, even harder to, to, to get any easy consensus uh, on the matter. Um, that sort of turns my mind to um, another one of the meetings that was held, the first Mekong-US Partnership Ministerial Meeting. Can you tell us a bit more about that? 
that. Yes, so the meeting, the US-ASEAN uh, meeting uh, of foreign ministers uh, was one of the more interesting and more reported meetings and uh, it was quite unconventional. Um, I think Secretary Pompeo, US Secretary Pompeo was quoted saying um, that you know, don't let China walk over us, end of quote. Uh, something is rather unconventional in diplomatic conduct, especially in ASEAN sort of uh, culture. Uh, so it was very uh, clear in terms of, you know, how he sees China and how he, um, how US is, is, is seeing China currently. And that adds to, um, that was a little bit you know, draw a lot of the tension uh, in the region because it was very clearly interpreted as you know, uh, very pointed at China and and um, choosing us instead of China. But another good outcome of um, the U.S. Uh, ASEAN dialogue was the U.S. commitment um, to Mekong. Uh, it's a it's a region that, as you know. Um, I've been passionate about and uh, bringing attention to Mekong because uh, it's been uh, sidelined for a long, long time. U.S. had um, an initiative under Obama called the Lower Mekong Initiative, but unfortunately it has been lying there lifelessly for a long time. And um, other than Japan, really the, the region, the sub-region has been really dominated by China's and its institution uh, no, uh, initiatives as well as you know the, the shared dominance um, by size so that initiative that was uh, announced uh, by us it's it's a positive um signal that us is paying attention to the need of the region to the need of sub-region in particular because it is quite contentious as well um it us pledged uh, some you know of over 150 million dollars to um the lower Mekong countries so thailand Myanmar, cambodia Vietnam and Laos for a number of projects, but um, they they would be uh, focused on you know um, data sharing of hydrological data sharing, disaster management, and effort to to fight um, endemic levels of cross border crime that is quite um, prevalent there. So a lot of good initiative in terms of you know improving transparency and good governance in the region. Um, it was well received. Uh, of course, there would be critics who would say that it's too little too late um, because it's been you know left alone the region has been left to its own devices for too long and and really a 150 million uh, initiative is not uh, changing uh, entirely the balance but it I think it's a good um, it's a good step towards a good to the right direction great that's very interesting just to bring it back to wrap things up uh, to the Australian context. Um, obviously, the ASEAN foreign ministers met with the Australian foreign minister. Could you tell us a bit about what's on the agenda for the ASEAN-Australia relationship? Yes, Australia's um, actually engagement is quite positive in, in this regard. Uh, I think um, Minister Payne pledged a number of um, funds in that to contribute to the recovery fund, the ASEAN recovery fund, but also to support uh, Australian-ASEAN um, partnership, development partnership in terms of, you know, economic recovery and um, initiatives that uh, contribute to connectivity, infrastructure and di digital transformation. But I think what is a really important outcome of, of um, the recent meetings was that uh, the ASEAN and Australia have committed to um, having annual 
ASEAN Australia summits uh, starting from 2021. So annualize the the dialogue that had been um, uh, every uh, other year uh, before and uh, had um, committed to new plan of action. So Australia is really interested in in stepping up engagement. Um, intensifying the numbers of engagement, but also really be uh, an active partner in uh, seeking post-recovery uh, solutions that are relevant to ASEAN, but also Australia. So we're looking at plans to, to recover from pandemic together that, rather than separately. So that's a good outcome. Thanks so much for joining me today, Juan. Thank you, Alex. It's been a pleasure. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We're excited to bring you a special next week on the 75th UN General Assembly as UN Leaders Week kicks off. So please watch out for that. As always, thanks for listening.